Welcome along. Friday afternoon, we always kick that off with Dennis Stewart for Health Naturally. Dennis, uh, a bit of an interesting topic that you've got for us today. It's been in the media a bit as of late, and herbal toxicity today. Yes, look, I just want to say a few words, uh, Mark, about this topic that's uh, circulating presently. Are herbs safe? I want to say a few words that will clear the air, so to speak, and uh, give pay or give clients a real confidence that the herbs we use overwhelmingly are safe. But we'll look at some factors that will impinge and bear on that. First up, uh, Jan at Raymond Terrace. You've got a question about mussels for Dennis today. Hi, yes. Hello, Jan. How are you? I'm well. Good. Um, I, was, I had a massage yesterday and yes. the therapist said that I have uh, ropey mussels and recommended Hawthorne to help the mussels for when she massages it that they can release because of the calcification. Is that... Ooh, I think that's a big call. I, yeah. I, I, know, I know a lot about um, Hawthorne. I've studied it. I've harvested it in the New England region. Uh, I've read the literature. I've prescribed it for 40 years. But Hawthorne always comes over to me as a herb that has a distinct affinity for the cardiovascular system. Um, I'm, I'm not discounting what uh, your mass- massage therapist has said to you, but I have not uh, experienced uh, this and no, no significant literature that would support the idea that uh, Hawthorne is a, is a muscle relaxant or an agent that breaks up calcification in the musculature. Um, now, again, um, one can be open to learn uh, a lot about these things, and I don't discount this, but it's not something that I would emphasise. There is uh, something in the literature that suggests, or well, more than that, uh, that, that encourages us to believe that a chronic a long-term regular use of the hawthorn berry, we're remarkable, yeah. a remarkable herb that it is, does have some effect on plaque deposition. In fact, in the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia of 1983, uh, frequently referred to by, by herbalists such as myself as the, the Bible of modern herbalism, hawthorn berry is referred to as potentially capable of uh, lessening uh, plaque deposition on the vascular wall, and I have sympathy with that viewpoint and have encouraged people uh, with vascular problems to look at that potential benefit. But again, I come back to the point I have great difficulty in giving too much credibility to a statement which sees it having an effect on the musculature in the way that you've uh, said. But again, your massage therapist may know something that I don't know. I'm open to that. Well, apart from massaging yes. that area, yes. how, how do you get rid of that ropiness? Well, I'm, the term ropiness, I'm, I'm inclined to interpret that as implying that the musculature is tight, that it's in spasm, um, that it needs being released or relaxed. Yes. And, and, yes. and there in itself, uh, regular massage therapy, in my opinion regardless of, uh, of what you use, regular massage therapy, even with just a, an ordinary massage oil, persevered with, uh, has the potential, in my opinion, to relax the musculature, and that is why sportsmen, footballers, uh, etc., have mm. massage therapists on hand to cover the contingency 
uh, of a muscle going into spasm or tightness. Um, so my way of thinking is certainly uh, if there is the, uh, the symptoms of tightness and tension and spasm, which is affecting particularly your mobility, persevere with massage therapy. I'm a, a great fan of it. Uh, my wife utilises it regularly. Um, I haven't got t- time to, to have any <laughs> massage therapy. But um, look, uh, a lot of oils uh, are implicated, um, but even just simple olive oil used as a massage oil um, in the context of regular uh, Swedish massage techniques, nothing flash, nothing expensive, but regular massage therapy, I see that in itself being the solution, not what you massage with. Thank you very much, Jen. Uh, heading to uh, Newcastle now for Darren, and you've got a question for Dennis about rosemary today. Oh, uh, Dennis, just before I get to rosemary, yes. ginseng, I've been, take, I've been taking the ginseng like, half my life. I'm 50, I've been taking it since I was 27. There you go. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, and I feel good. I don't feel 50. Good. But, um, yeah, um, are you supposed to have a break off ginseng? Look, ginseng is one of those herbs that, in my opinion, is best seen as a medicinal food. There are some there are some herbs which are meant to be used to treat a disease, and when the disease condition is resolved, uh, they should be withdrawn from. There are some herbs that are referred to as having more stimulating characteristics than anything else, and there's a good argument to say that uh, the effect of stimulus from them might wear off if they are used in a sustained way. On the other hand, there are certain herbs which are referred to as having tonic capacities and they are seen as agents which can be used almost as medicinal foods and continued to support the body ongoingly there being no real concern about their sustained use. Uh, In some of the older literature there is a a bit of a hint that uh, the long-term use of ginseng could affect blood pressure etc. I've never ever seen that. I've never seen it in my many years of practice and a regular healthy, uh, not over-the-top use of ginseng, I consider to be something that can resist a lot of the factors associated with ageing. And you would have heard me talk on this program frequently about the way in which the ginsengs are put forward as remedies that have been used traditionally to withstand the ageing process. And that is because they're taken in a sustained way. Now, there will be people out there, maybe some herbalists, pharmacists, who will uh, disagree with me and say, oh, no, that's not true. Well, all I can say is that over 40 years, I've probably used more ginseng than any other person in the world. I have not seen people dying of hypertension. I've not seen people so stimulated they're off their face. Ginseng is a good tonic remedy, and you've sustained the benefit of it. How can I contradict it? Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll keep going then. Right, uh, the rosemary, um, a fellow who drank too much told me that um, his doctor said to eat rosemary because it, um, it helps your liver, it re- reforms your liver. And, okay, um, well, okay. Now, now look. Mate, uh, two seconds, two seconds, yep, two seconds. Yep. My, my stepfather yes. had a bad liver. Yes. And taking rosemary in just two weeks is half yeah. his count. Yes. Now, what you need to realise is that there are some herbs that have... A, a benefit on the liver. We were going to start off today talking about this controversy about uh, a particular herb which uh, is seemingly being implicated in liver damage, something that 
I would dissent from, and uh, I might come back to that topic later on. But there are some herbs which are renowned for their capacity to improve liver function. Let me talk about a few of them first before we come back to rosemary, and I'll give you some further interesting information on this remarkable and beautiful remedy. In herbal medicine, the three main herbs that are used to address elevated liver enzymes, which are usually an indication that the liver is struggling, the three main herbs are St Mary's thistle, globe artichoke and the dandelion. And any Western herbalist, or indeed any pharmacist that has a knowledge of Western herbs, would know of the reputation of those three herbs, which I prescribe regularly from my clinic in New Lambton. On the other hand, there are other herbs that share similar characteristics, and interestingly, rosemary is one of them. I'm intrigued, I'm intrigued that uh, the good doctor mentioned it uh, to you or your wife, um, uh, is is your doctor an Anglo or is he a, an ethnically trained doctor? It was a friend of mine who had a liver problem. Okay, and his doctor. And his doctor yeah. Okay, yeah. A, a lot of well, I'd say ethnic doctors. A lot of doctors trained uh, overseas are more familiar with herbs than some of the uh, doctors in in English speaking countries, uh, and they have a, a knowledge of of herbs which frequently sees them making recommendations. Um, for conditions to be treated with herbs. And I welcome this. I, in fact, one of the things I note today after so many years in practice is that even uh, some uh, doctors trained in this country, English-speaking doctors, uh, are beginning to mention to their patients the potential use of a herb for this or that. Rosemary is referred to as a colagogue. Now, that might uh, be a mouthful for many listeners, but it explains what the good doctor was uh, was passing on. A colagogue is a, a, a term that's used to describe the improvement in the secretory activity of the liver. So rosemary, when used sensibly, and I'll come back to this in a moment, when used sensibly and in doses that are within the range, can improve the secretory activity of the liver as the other herbs do that I mentioned, which may then reflect itself in some improvement in the liver function tests. So I would go along with that, but I would quick, quickly point out to listeners that rosemary, safe as it is when used as a herbal tea or when prescribed in dosages as a fluid extract or tincture, rosemary contains an essential oil which gives it its pleasant odour now, that essential oil, when extracted from rosemary, is potentially toxic. And it's very toxic if it's used in, 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 in mill doses. So there's a big difference in using a rosemary in a safe, regulated way as a herbal tea, a herbal extract, or even as a capsule. But don't equate rosemary being used that way with the essential oil of rosemary. Like many essential oils extracted from many herbs, when they're isolated from the herb, they can be potentially very, very problematical and even toxic. Now, that does not deflate my fascination, interest and regular use of rosemary as a herb. I don't use it as an oil, but I use it as a herb and I might surprise you when I say 
that in every migraine formula that I put together for my patients, rosemary will be a lead remedy. Dennis, your topic for today, herbal toxicity. It's been in the news and the media over the last couple Mm. of weeks, particularly the herb valerium, Mm. uh, suspected of causing liver damage. Mm. Uh, How toxic are herbs, and particularly that one? Yes, look, we've just said a little bit about this this topic. Um, Leaving aside valerian for the moment, which I think... um, is a great herb that I've used all my life with no evidence in any of my patients or clients that it's caused any uh, health problems. Um, but let me look at it from this perspective. We, we frequently hear the statement from people, uh, oh, herbs are good because herbs are safe. Now, one could understand that statement, but it's not correct. In my opinion, the correct statement should be that herbs are safer I have said even to a previous listener uh, the way in which a herb can become a toxin, particularly when it is extracted and part of it is extracted and concentrated, as in, say, the essential oils of many herbs when they're used orally, other than their major use, which is in aromatherapy, topical applications. For instance, the father of Western philosophy was Socrates, And anyone that knows anything about ancient history will know something about the death of Socrates, as observed and witnessed by Plato. Socrates chose suicide rather than exile from the Athenian state. And he, with his uh, following around him, younger followers, uh, took the hemlock. And in the book The Trial and Death of Socrates by Plato, is a very, very significant rendition of how the father of Western philosophy actually died as the effect, the progressive paralysing effect of the hemlock on him. It's quite a remarkable read. Hemlock is a herb botanically known as Conium maculatum. It's a significant and dangerous herb, which puts paid to the theory that herbs per se are safe, I know many herbs, even that grow in the wayside round here, like the thorn apple, Stramonium datura, which are equally toxic to that of the hemlock. But let me be quick to say, they are not the herbs that characterise Western herbalism. They are not the herbs that have been used in folk medicine for 2,000 years. They are not the herbs that Europeans in particular have practised medicine with for 2,000 years. They are the herbs that have built up a safe reputation. The herbs we use today are safe herbs, proven to be safe as a result of 2,000 years of recorded effective use, particularly in European society. The second thing is this. The herbs that we use today and are permitted to use today are regulated by the authorities in most Western countries. In this country, we have what's called the poison schedule. And that is a schedule which dictates substances which are considered to be poisonous and therefore restricted in this country. The herbs we use are not included in the poison schedule. They are not considered to be poisonous. So in two ways, 2,000 years of safe history in developing a tradition of Western herbalism based on herbs that we still use, the empirical basis of modern herbalism, together with the regulatory authority 
defining what is a poison and exempting the herbs we use today from the poison schedule indicates that as a general rule, the public can be considered or can be consoled or supported by the idea that herbs, when used in the context of their traditional use, are safe. Now, having said that, and I'm quick to point out, Mark, I'm quick to point out that everyone has the potential to have what's called an idiosyncratic reaction. That is, a reaction to something which the majority of people can use without any side effect whatsoever, even something, we might say, that's harmless to the general population, can become, if you like, a challenge or a toxin to the individual. That's what we call an idiosyncratic reaction. Now, with reference to the herb valerian and its seeming implication in a liver incident, it's distinctly possible, uh, in my opinion, in my opinion, that valerian, unlikely, but it's, it's possible that valerian caused an idiosyncratic reaction. That's just my opinion. I'm not a pharmacologist. I'm uh, not a plant scientist or a phytochemical expert. But we must leave room for that possibility. I rarely see these reactions. I come back to the fact that there would be few herbalists in the English-speaking world, that is in the US, in Canada, in England, New Zealand and South Africa. There would be few herbalists in the English-speaking world having practised consistently at a specialist level, herbal medicine than myself. And I'm not boasting, it's just a fact. I have not seen in my whole career any reaction from anyone using valerian, but I'm open to the suggestion or open to the idea that an idiosyncratic reaction could be implicated. Dennis, I love that you're able to name drop your own name there, but that's just another skill. <laughs> Generally speaking, a lot more safer. Yes, they are, they are guided by uh, guidelines and regulations, yes, which you mentioned. Absolutely. Um, and obviously individuals, there can be special cases where people have a reaction there. Yeah. Is this then blown out of proportion? I imagine a lot of the, the criticism is coming from outside of of herbal medicine, and if so or not, why? What's the thought behind it? I'm reluctant to go down that pathway because, gee, again, we've come a long way um, since I started practising where there was a lot of antagonism uh, to the use of herbal medicine. Now, look, I don't think there was anything deliberately antagonistic in this. I didn't watch the program, but I I, I liked the program, but I didn't watch that one. I'm reluctant to go down the pathway and look at conspiracy theories or overt bias from the media or people in it. Uh, look, I don't. Uh, my opinion is no. I don't think that was implicated. I think it was a case that uh, needed to be mentioned. Perhaps it was of public interest. Um, I personally have not received too much. Um, how can you call it? Supportive feedback from my patients. But no, I wouldn't go down the pathway of seeing it anything other than a program of interest to the public on an incident that has stimulated discussion. Going straight to the phones, Gavin at Soldiers Point. Uh, you've got a friend of a friend of a friend who wants to know about native bees, and Dennis is your man. <laughs> OK. Um, yeah, what happened was I was on a uh, community transport bus and the driver has a, a little parcel of land out at Madawi and he um, was trying to... Uh, saw some native bees uh, to make an aviary so that he could pollinate all these various crops and these uh, flowers and all that sort of stuff. 
I tried the local council, but they haven't got any sort of program uh, going, so I just thought I'd ask you. Yeah, look, first of all, I would encourage uh, listeners generally to take on board the aspiration of your friend at Madawi, who is seeking uh, to encourage uh, pollination and is seeking to encourage the survival of our bees, whether they be <clears throat> the native bee that you're talking about or questioning about or the European honeybee that I spend most of my time uh, looking at, uh, working with and being stung with. Um, yeah. uh, what I would say is this. I'm not aware of any one particular person that supplies these, and I wouldn't be able to say that on air in any case. But what yeah. I will make a few suggestions that I think uh, will get you where you need to go. If you, yep. if you Google up uh, local bee societies, and there are many of them, uh, there's the Central Coast Apiarist Association, there's the Hunter Valley Group that I know very well, a good group of guys, and they used to meet uh, at, at the Hexham Bowling Club. I'm not sure okay. whether they still do. Cole Wilson is one of the guys that uh, is associated with it. He's a great guy. Um, I guess what I'm saying is these are specialist organisations which, whilst they're primarily interested in uh, in bees that produce honey and all that goes with that, would have a good handle also on the emerging interest in, in native bees. I think that's your first stop. Um, also, uh, again, look in your phone book or Google up um, uh, honey suppliers, uh, bee equipment suppliers. Now, I've given you a lead there. Bee equipment suppliers, there are a few of them in Newcastle and one in particular. Uh, I won't mention names, but he's very prominent and they've been in the game many, 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 many years. They also are a font of information and would be able to give you a clue as to who to seek out uh, to get hold of these things. OK, thank you very much, Dennis. Uh, one thing, yes. your secretary um, said to me, because uh, I, I said her I'm partly sided, so I, don't, I can't drive up to buy any honey off you, but she said, your honey is to die for. Oh, she's she's very loyal. She's very loyal. But look, I'll quickly come in here on behalf of all local beekeepers. I've got to say this, and this is not a commercial, but look, there are guys out there that are doing us proud by the way in which they produce honey and it's genuine from the hive to the consumer. They're all over the place. I know many of them. They get stung regularly like I do. They love their bees. They look after their bees. They produce first-class honey. They're frequently at our markets. They all produce, produce honey as good as mine. Wherever you can, wherever you can, support your local uh, producer of honey, whether it be at the market or down the road. You can't beat locally produced, genuine, pure Australian honey. Now, how about that? And I don't think 2NUR would wrap me on the knuckles for saying with that, with that, Mike. Dennis, you, cer- <laughs> you certainly know how to be prepared. <laughs> Thanks, Gavin. Not, not quite herbal advice, but uh, a, bit of, a, a bit of insight there for you. We'll come back uh, with Dennis in, in a minute and wrap up. He's got the lemon balm on his mind uh, and uh, in terms of herbal toxicity. Uh, Belmont Neighbourhood Centre now has a JP, a Justice of the Peace Service, to help you out there. Dennis, I can never find one when I need one. Now I know where to look. Well, there you go. And you probably need them regularly, do you? (laughs) Is that a good thing, a bad thing, or is it just a thing? I don't know. I don't know. Dennis, you've been looking a bit about lemon balm over the last couple of weeks, particularly in terms of uh, nervous dysphoria. I believe 
there could be some other conditions, other ailments such as IBS that it may be able to help with. Yeah, look, for two weeks we've uh, spoken about lemon balm, a remarkable but underused herb for addressing what I refer to as nervous dyspepsia. But arising from that, uh, a number of people have contacted my office and uh, spoke about irritable bowel syndrome and was wondering whether or not this very common condition, irritable bowel syndrome, can be helped with lemon balm. It can be helped by lemon balm, but let me be quick to point out that there are other herbs also that have what I would refer to as a settling effect on the abdomen, a settling effect on this condition known as irritable bowel syndrome. Some people might say, look, is what, what is irritable bowel syndrome? It's really an umbrella term that is used to describe a set of symptoms that can be characterised by bloating, uh, colic, constipation, diarrhoea, even at times nausea, and where on investigation by our good doctors or our gastroenterologists, there is no real uh, pathological basis for the symptoms. There is no disease that can be related to an organ that's associated with the symptoms. So irritable bowel syndrome is referred to as a, a functional condition. That is, all the goods are there, but there is dysfunction in the way the gut is working. Now, this is where herbs such as lemon balm, but usually in conjunction with better-known herbs, one in particular is the peppermint. Peppermint, again, is frequently used even as a, as a lozenge. Um, it's, it's got multiple uses, but very few people appreciate the fact that it is one of the leading remedies, even on its own, even on its own, to address many of the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. And again, used as a herbal tea, used as a, a tablet or a capsule, or in finished pharmaceutical forms, the peppermint is an underrated remedy, again, to deal with those symptoms which very frequently, as I've said, don't mean there's a, a critical disease in the gut, but there are factors that are causing the gut to develop those symptoms that are characterised by irritable bowel syndrome. Which are those, there, are, there are so many of them. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and this is why the term functional, that I use anyway, is good, because it basically puts IBS into the category of a disease that's not sinister, but it's a reality, and many people suffer from it. Many people go down the pathway of dietary change, etc., etc. Some get benefit from it. I prefer to be more pragmatic as a herbalist and look at herbs that have a calming, balancing, almost a sedative effect on the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. Three I would mention, uh, finally, that need to be taken on board. Certainly continue to think about the lemon balm, although, as I've said for some time, the lemon balm is best seen as a herb particularly for what I call nervous dyspepsia, that is, upper gut conditions that are brought on as a result of nervous tension, excitement or worry. But it can also be a companion remedy, as is frequently the case in my prescribing, when with herbs such as peppermint and in particular with the mighty chamomile. Where would herbless be without the European herb chamomile or as many Europeans call it chamomilla? Where would we be without it? Those three herbs, and I'm speaking here to many naturopaths, pharmacists and herbalists that might be listening to this program, those three herbs are still the backbone of my treatment, usually using extracts for irritable bowel syndrome, which in the majority of cases see some relief 
in the most unpleasant of the symptoms. So there are two other herbs to be thought of in conjunction with the remarkable lemon balm, peppermint, a remarkable herb that it is, and the wonderful and gracious chamomile. So is IBS, just back on that quickly, Dennis, is that different to leaky gut or are they under the same umbrella? Look, the term leaky gut is, is, is a term that connotes a lot of possibilities. It's not a term that I use that much. It's a more modern term, whereas irritable bowel syndrome is more medically used and as such I give perhaps greater credibility to it. Uh, Irritable bowel syndrome, to my way of thinking, expresses the symptomatology that might arise from what some therapists call the leaky gut syndrome. Dennis, just finally, Don from New Lambton gave us a buzz uh, while we were were on air there, and he rang to say a lot of good information on Facebook about uh, native bees, but the Bee Society, they are now meeting at Hunter Botanical Gardens at Heatherbrae, so just up the road. Oh, wonderful. Thanks for that feedback. Lovely. I appreciate it, Don. Dennis, a big program today. Thank you for your time. And you coined a new phrase too, Mm. Google Up. Google Up. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm starting to get with some of the modern jargon. (laughs) He's creating it. Look, I'm creating it. People (laughs) get fascinated by the fact that I still have a flick phone. (laughs) <laughs> but I can justify the use of that, but I won't today. And the notes that Dennis brings every week are handwritten, and, uh, yeah, I think I'll, I'll slowly work it out. You're getting very good at We're it. Getting I'm, there. I'm impressed. I got through to the third line before well, I had well, to ask today. That's your university educational background. <laughs> Dennis, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.